Welcome to the only show dedicated to a new way of delivering healthcare. This new model has no name, but let's go ahead and call it direct contracting or digital first care. The new way centers on opting out of the games bigs play with their rigged dice, their crooked game board, and their purchased referees. And if you're looking for a future where everyone wins, that's the doc, the consumer, the employer, and with assured amazing outcomes and measurably lower costs that are ranging up to 60%, you're in the right place. I'm Ron Barshop, your host. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the new healthcare economy. PCPs and big insurers sure have an odd relationship these days. You're in network, but they are competing for your patients now, and they want to hire your colleagues away from you and your nurses, and they are or will soon offer virtual primary care in your city. At least three of the five biggest announced they would do that last month. Aetna CVS is expanding their medic clinics into primary care clinics uh, as hub spots or health hubs, they're calling them and as a central growth omni-channel strategy. We'll talk later about omni-channel strategies, another show. How does this latest insult of your insurance company that's supposed to be paying you, your payer, competing with you, how does that impact your love-hate relationship with them you already have? Well, it's no picnic out there, but you already know all this stuff that I'm about to say today. I'm just gonna spell it out. But not to worry, there's a clean way to exit this game and there's a clean way to win without a big fight or struggle or lost sleep because there's an enormous shift away from all of the headaches created by how you're paid as a doc. 20,000 plus primary care providers have chosen to direct contract with employers and consumers that serves 30 million employees and about 10% of them are independent. And you can read about them on the uh, various direct primary care websites. Uh, but 90% work for startups that are the biggest of the bigs. In other words, they are growing fast. And there's companies that have been on this show like Premise Health and Everside and Crossover Health and Medici. And they get paid on a per member per month basis by employers, not by insurance companies, not by bigs. So their panels are much smaller. 500 to 850 is pretty typical for these direct contractors. And if they are doing virtual only like Medici or like say 98.6, who's also been on this show and helps Walmart, they're gonna have a larger panel, but they'll still be the same employees you'll be talking to consistently. So you will have a panel. You're not gonna be talking to random people every week, every day. So peer virtual is a little bit different, but when you have bricks and mortar, you have a panel that's much smaller than what you have today, 1500 to 2500. So it's not volume centric care anymore. When you go virtual first or digital first and bricks and mortar. Anyway, the good news is that the employees, you'll know them just like you know your current patients. And it's just different. So it's scaled in every state, all 50 states. There's 30 million patients that are currently being served, likely more. That's all that we've counted on this show. And this show hasn't had every one of the companies on it. Nobody's really tracking it. So we don't know. But I'm guessing 30 million is a pretty safe bet. So the best part, the direct contract movement rejects the CPT-coded Bible the ISDN codes, adios, because they're paid, as I said, by a monthly subscription per member per month. Okay, so some out there will code your one if an employer signs up just to prove out the direct contracted savings net, which range 20 to 
And the range is wide, I say 20 to 60, because some employers direct contract all at once. They rip the Band-Aid off or they run, and some walk, they ease into it and rip the Band-Aid off slowly. So, for example, employees would be offered a PPO, HMO, and a DPC option in a go-slow approach. Not everybody moves immediately out of the PPO and the HMO they've had so long, sometimes for decades, because it's a name brand and they know it and trust it. Even though the DPC option, direct primary care option, has no copays, no deductibles. Well, that sounds strange for some people. They don't want to dive into that swimming pool until they hear from their friends that it works. So, and they may have to leave a doctor that they've had for many years, and some people don't want to do that. Other go slow strategies that employers use is instead of direct contracting with the entire ecosystem, I call it the five fingers, which means primary care, pharmacies, surgery, specialists, imaging labs. Instead of contracting with all of them, they might just contract with pharmacy initially to get those initial easy, low-hanging fruit savings and make their employees very happy. So it's an evolution from newbies at the game if you're an employer, but some just like to run fast year one and dive right in there in the new economy, which is what Rosen Hotels did in 1994, and they're the probably prime example of an employer who just ripped the band-aid off and never looked back. We also had Paul Johnson Drywall, PJD, on one of our shows early on, and uh, it's our most downloaded show, but they just ripped the band-aid off and never looked back. And I did the same thing myself with my company, much smaller. Okay, back to doctors, because that's how we started this rant here, is opting out of sick care is a very real possibility for you as a doctor. With who? Well, Listen to my past shows. I just named five or six companies and all the CEOs or the chief medical officers of these companies have been on this show and will be on again because we're keeping up with them. So here's what wearing a hot fur coat in July feels like when you feel like you have to be in this legacy carrier industry is you have to live with pre-authorizations and prior authorizations. Really? Uh, the consumer friction of high sky high deductibles we estimate 70 to 80 million are basically functionally uninsured. So a lot of patients can't finish what they start with you as a primary care provider. And they're priced out of reach. In other words, of their primary care and meds because they simply can't afford these sky-high deductibles. 40% of people are in sky-high deductibles and 40% of people have illiquidity. So about half of your patients, possibly more, because we had 85 million last year that carried medical debt. And we have 70 million if you do the math on 40% of workers. But somewhere between 70 and 80 million people are basically functionally uninsured. So they can't finish what they start with you sometimes. And that's got to be frustrating. Also, administrative dweebs and pretend white coats are judging you and denying you for care you've been giving for years to patients that you know well. And they are completely out of touch with the dire needs of some of these patients of yours. And the EHR is not designed to help you it's designed to help the insurance companies, and it's certainly not designed to help the consumers. So we would have an answer to COVID and cancer treatment and everything. If we had full access to all this great EHR data, we'd know what exactly works out there. We don't. How about charting at night? You like that one? That's my favorite one that I hear from docs. And the volume pressures, you're constantly under more pressure to see more patients in the old legacy hot for code in July system. And then also I hear from a lot more doctors, they have a fear of speaking out about a lot of things about what's going on in COVID and masking and whether they should use alternative therapies. And there's a constant also pressure of chargebacks, but for one typographical error in a giant chart. So I don't think I'm being overdramatic by calling this fur coat in July and all this insanity I just described and a merry-go-round is maybe we can call it evil. 
It's clearly not consumer or position-centric behavior when insurance companies are poking you in the eye by competing with you for not only your people, but for your network, for your patients. It's a dirty finger in the eye as well. It's not just a finger in the eye. It's, it's an insult. So we are still the bastion of freedom in this country, but it just doesn't feel like it navigating this minefield of rules that the bigs have set up. It's more akin to like authoritarianism, isn't it? They take away your voice. They take away your autonomy. They question your training. It's a very important calling, and it suddenly becomes drudgery, uh, and primary care is not supposed to be about that. So opt out is an option from the manipulation, from the mistreatment, from the muzzling. They are begging you to come into their bosom further, but you can opt out too. So I'm living in a future as a consumer of this product that is a future where we all win, and you can too. And today's guest completely gets this because he did something very interesting, and it's a first in America. I'm introducing you today to Dr. Omar Maddock Diasson. He's a pediatric academician who has led multiple initiatives at the brand new U of H Medical School in Houston, Texas. And it was created to add diversity to our physicians here in Texas, and it's done a great job. So as its chief medical officer, it isn't enough that he created from scratch and is running a brand new program, but he also started a DPC free clinic. I can't understand how that matches together, so he's going to explain it to us today. A DPC free clinic is part of his responsibilities. It's the first ever, as I said, in a medical school. Why is this important? It's important, in my opinion, and I want to hear his, because now medical students don't just have to round in a hospital, which isn't really primary care anyway. It's hospitalist medicine. It's different. But now they can get an experience in a direct primary care practice, too, and a free clinic to boot. We're going to hear all about that. Welcome, Omar, to the show. Thank you, Ron. You know, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, so why will students want to become primary care doctors these days? <laughs> so just to clarify something, and uh, the, the clinic is not free. So patients are actually paying, and, and, and I'm able to explain that better because we want to make a model that is sustainable. Okay. Well, explain, how did y'all get this idea to get this started, and where did you learn about DPC initially? Because this is unusual for a medical school. No, no, absolutely. As you said, I'm a pediatrician, so I was working for a large uh, federal qualified health center in Houston. Uh, you know, as a pediatrician, I was seeing all the parents. They were asking me for care, and I realized that a lot of them didn't have access to healthcare insurance. Just in Harris County, I think the last data that I saw, 1.4 million individuals are either underinsured or don't have access to insurance. So it's really, we have a, a high need. I'm assuming other parts in Texas are the same. Uh, I did uh, an MBA and on those, you know, uh, in the classes, I met individuals that they tell me, hey, there's this thing that CMMS is just putting out about direct contracting. And that caught my eye, you know, and all these primary care first initiatives and, and, and DCF uh, contracts. And I was trying to think, so how can we offer this for people that don't have access to the insurance? So that's how the idea came up. I met the dean of this medical school, a wonderful family medicine physician, Dr. Espan, and he liked my, my pitch, and he invited me to join the school two years ago. And with his support, we have been able to do this. We got a funding from the current Healthcare Trust, a local healthcare foundation, to really start you know, in this clinic in a specific area in Houston that has around 40% of uninsured in Gulftown. And this aligned very well with the medical school because the idea of this new college of medicine is to educate like a diverse group of physicians 
that want to decide to stay in primary care. So DPC makes a lot of sense just from the experience, the way you practice medicine to really try to have students become passionate primary care doctors. Because as you were saying on your intro, if you start thinking the reality that no one will want to do primary care, right? Mm -hmm. Well, primary care is still a noble calling and it still can compensate well without all the stress, but you have to think about it differently than going to work for a big hospital or going to work for a big practice. You don't have to do that today. And the beauty of what you're doing is you're going to let these medical students take around to go see exactly what a primary care clinic can run like when it's direct contracted. So I'm going to assume that when people come in that are uninsured, they're going to be paying a per member per month. Are you sticking with that formula? Yes, yes. I mean, the, the, the innovation here is just maybe the market and the place where we're doing. But we have been opening officially, let's say two weeks, unofficially a couple of months, but people will be paying $60 per month per person. We're working on a family package right now. People will have access to full spectrum primary care services. We have, you know, whatever, like a traditional DPC. We have POC labs. We have direct contract with the labs. We have made some discounted rates of a specialty and diagnostic services uh, with a local hospital. So patients have access to that. Uh, but mostly people are paying out of pocket. We haven't gone through the employers at this moment. Uh, we're just uh, marketing to patients and the demand has been tremendously, I can tell you that. That's, I'm so glad to hear that, Omar. Is, uh, when I think of the care stack, that is offered by more experienced DPC that have been out there five or 10 or 15 years. They're offering not just traditional primary care, but also urgent care, of course. And they're offering mm -hmm. some form of dermatology where they can do probably 15 or 20 different skin procedures. Some are offering behavioral health. Are y'all planning to get into mental health or is, you can stay away from that for now? No, no, no. Uh, that's a, a medium term strategy because uh, we have a strong you know, psychology department here. We don't have that yet for the members, but the, the long-term game is to do a truly integrated behavioral health practice. Okay. I haven't worked out all the kinks, but that's definitely on the, on the books. It's really a beautiful thing that you, when you build primary care from the ground up of what the patient needs, mental health is almost always going to be part of it because it's just such a big part of the telehealth availability. There's so much you can do by phone, by digital. You don't really have to go in all the time. And um, I was looking at a study today that most of the telehealth today is actually mental health consults, much more so than the what I use it for, which is I need to renew my medications or I just have a question or, you know, trying to get an appointment at a lab. But uh, it seems like that is a really good opportunity for a primary care to redefine itself. It is. Last year, this was not on the DPC, but the clinic we have here. I can tell you the mental health component probably was 80% the telemedicine and has to stay like that. The rest has come to the presence, but I agree with you. That's a big component. Also that I may add to the concept there, the fact that the doctor has time to spend with the patient, I don't know if there's a study out there, that will reduce a lot of the mental health issues because people can speak what they are having and feeling. And I think that has a lot of value that we just need to, to account and make sure that uh, we, we show that that makes a difference. So let's talk about that. How many providers will you have at your new clinic? And then what's the patient panel size going to be per doc, per nurse? Yeah. I mean, right now, where is just starting? For now, it's going to be one. We anticipate to have between 
750, that's the goal. And we are really trying to, we put support staff so they can practice on top of the license and help the family medicine doctor that we hire. And she's a wonderful doctor, very experienced. Uh, so she can really do a good population healthcare management of, of the patient that she will own. As we are, if we see a lot of demand, then we can start hiring more doctors. Something that our dean really wants to do is he really wants to only hire physicians. And I think I fully support that. That has a lot to do with showing the student that can be done and really putting the value back to the doctor as the leader in the primary care space. As you're mentioning, we have all these companies which are wonderful. I know some of the people you have bring to your show, but as a medical school, I think we need to put the doctor back on the center so they can serve the patient again. You know, it's interesting. There's now DPC with PAs in some states because they have full scope. Uh, there's DPAC mm -hmm. in Austin run by nurses, uh, strictly yeah. nurses. So there's different strategies for doing this, but I agree with you, the training of you know, ten to fifteen thousand hours per doctor makes a lot more sense than a, a nurse who may have five hundred hours or two thousand hours or a PA who may have fifteen hundred hours. But uh, I, again, I like pairing um, extenders with doctors, but to have them run their own clinic unless they're extremely experienced, uh, it's a little scary for me. I don't know. I, I respect deeply, you know, my nurse practitioners and PAs that I have worked during my life. I think they're tremendously valued. But if you think from an educational perspective, I think even from a, people you want to look up or you want to admire, you want to learn, I think having doctors makes sense in a medical school. Maybe in the future, we will uh, expand with PAs or nurse practitioners, but I think we are really committed to show students and to hopefully create a marketplace in which they can later work. If you think we want to train these students to be community advocates, to do population health, to train on these risk slash value-based care models, but when they go out, what are the options that they have? It's either I work for a big hospital, I join one of these startups, I join one of these big uh, you know, medical groups. So we, I think just showing them, hey, Look, this can be done. If we were able to do this in the medical school, you can do this or even more. So hopefully inspiring like a new generation of doctors that have more entrepreneurial mindset. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, of course. We have Plum Health on our show and that physician uh, is a good social media. Not, he's knowledgeable in social media, knows how to build a practice, has his, opened his second clinic. Um, and he just started a couple of years ago. You know, the yeah. Ambear brothers in Kansas, they keep offering what they're doing is they're established and they just keep offering more and more services for free. Mm -hmm. so they keep buying more equipment and saying, now we're going to do, you know, this procedure, and that system. And we're going to offer bariatric. That's what they offered last year. So it's nice to see the evolution of DPC. But I think, you know, some of it, some of the fear of doing it straight out of medical school is, can I attract three or 400 people? Because I did the math. If you take... 750 in a panel times 60 bucks, that's 45,000 a month. And you don't need more than a staff person or two. You don't need a billing or coding. You don't need, you know, people that run pre-authorizations because there's none of that inside the model. So it's a much cleaner, simpler staff. Yes. And just to add, and some people in your show have said, the way you practice medicine is also different because you are now truly focused on fixing the problem even from a value proposition, if I'm a patient 
And I know the doctor won't be thinking on billing or even investing time on, as you said, coding, documenting in a certain way that benefits more the billing part, not necessarily the patient care. Even training students to do these things right, I think we'll, I, there's a couple of articles that this reduces burnout. And also I will say will increase satisfaction. And patient quality, I haven't seen any large data set that says that this is patient quality in terms of quality of care. But we are looking you know, at the university to hopefully uh, create that data so we can show that, hey, this model not also is better from a financial perspective or from an employer, but actually keeps you healthier. I think you were able to demonstrate that, then this model can take off because this is the right thing to do. Yeah, well, you can't show from a scratch clinic like you have, but in clinics where they take over a practice, they show that hospital visits drop anywhere from 20 to 40%, that hospital stays drop anywhere from 40 to 60%, that um, you know the, the actual amount of medications drops as people start getting healthier, the amount of um, urgent care and emergency visits drop dramatically because now they don't need... 90% of the time to be in the emergency room, they can go to their DPC or call them in the, and instead of charting at night, your doctors will be communicating, you know, by a synchronous texting or, or voicemail or voice. So it's a different animal when you're, instead of charting for insurance companies at night, actually dealing with issues that the patients are wanting to deal with. So uh, it's a very exciting new idea. And I hope more medical schools uh, follow your lead. This is a great example of what can be done. Uh, to give medical students in primary care a new view of the world. Yeah, hopefully we make it right. And just to add to your point, your, I read one article that it reduces total healthcare utilization. You know, kind of thinking uh, besides emergency healthcare visits and hospital admins, I think from an employer perspective, that's that's where the data mostly is coming from. The challenge on the population we want to serve is if you think about more from a like social determinants of health or public good perspective, is we're gonna save money to all these big county hospitals, big non-for-profits. It's it will be hard to quantify the savings, but we are truly committed to do this five, 10 years and hopefully make an impact in the region. Yes, I'm excited for this. Um, have you heard about the new Robin Hood DPCs that are propping up in California? Yes, I think they just released, talking about that, it was, what, two or three weeks ago that they released an article, right? And DPC with a touch of Robin Hood. Yeah, what, and what's happening is there, now I know your neighborhood well, you're in a, not a borderline neighborhood. Your neighborhood is definitely going to serve your market. But mm -hmm. some of these neighborhoods in California have very wealthy neighborhoods right adjacent to very poor neighborhoods. And mm -hmm. so they are using a set of 60, maybe 100, 120 a month. And the wealthy people are, they're saying, you know, 60 of your 120 is going to pay for another uh, patient that's not going to have any cost at all, or maybe they'll have $5 a month. And um, so they call it Robin Hood because they're taking from the rich and giving to the poor and the rich are happy to do it. It's a form of taxation, but uh, yeah. one they happily pay. I think it's a fascinating concept. Just uh, thinking from a broader societal perspective, how do we consider healthcare as a public good? And if uh, who needs to own these memberships? And now that we know that this model actually saves money from the emergency and unnecessary hospitalizations. So yes, I, I remember this, the, that story you're sharing. It was, it was a very good story. 
It is. How are you getting the word out, Omar, and what can we do to help? You know, thank you for that. We are we have our full. So right now, um, we had what we call a soft opening on November because we are we are having a full time family medicine doctor joining us on January fifth. So all the big push will be after January fifth, and I think just spreading the word, especially after that day, so we can hold. Right now, I don't have the capacity to keep up with demand, but by January we will. Okay, well, we hope to get this issued uh, on or before your opening date so you can use this with your social media to get the word out. So we're yes. in full support of what you're doing and excited about it. Um, so Omar, I'd like to wrap this up by asking a question, as you've heard before, if you could fly a banner overhead, uh, what would it say? Become a primary care doctor. Okay, I love <laughs> it. And uh, how do people find you, Omar, if they want to reach out to you and learn more about this clinic and about you and your new medical school? I'm very responsive on LinkedIn, or if they also want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Omatuk. Uh, I'm also uh, responsive on Twitter. Okay, great. And congratulations on starting your new school, and it's a very exciting idea that what you're doing here. Thank you for doing it. Yes, and, you know, it's a team effort. I cannot take absolutely all credit. There's a lot of people behind me that are doing a lot of the work. So uh, it's, it's really a team effort. Well, very good. All right, well, you have a great day and we'll catch up with you in maybe a year or so and hear what's going on. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.